And now be pleased to call once again upon our brother Colin Hollenby to bring us the third study class on James, Chapter 3, entitled Exhortation to Wisdom. Brother Colin. Brother Chairman and our dear brethren and sisters, coming into James Chapter 3, after having been impressed with the fact that faith really in the Bible is only ever active and that we have a responsibility in this day and age to uphold God's judgments as being right as Abraham did. There was a pronouncement made over him that Abraham proved was the right pronouncement by his works. And that's really our job today, to prove that God is right in whatever he says, that we're going to uphold his righteousness at all costs, declaring, if it is necessary, as Paul says, that God is right and let every man be a liar. And it will not matter, brethren and sisters, what cost it is for us. It always will be a cost to admit that God is right. But that is not the issue. The issue is to show that God is right and true. And it's just too bad what the cost may be for the flesh. It has got to be borne so that the glory of God and the righteousness of God might be forwarded in our lives. Now in James chapter 3, we really do not propose to get very far in James chapter 3. We're going to take it very carefully in just the first four or five verses to see what James says in detail about the subject that is under consideration in chapter 3. We have seen that James has roundly condemned a situation where persons give respective persons for present advantage. And therefore, he probably starts off in chapter 3 at a little bit of a disadvantaged position when he begins to address the subject in hand in the early couple of verses of chapter 3 of James. Because the way he opens is, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now what does he mean? Well, it's only when we have a look at the word for masters throughout <coughs> the New Testament that we begin to understand what he means there. And he has got some very important principles in mind, principles which are not perhaps so much outlined in James chapter 3 as we will find them in other parts of the word. But he nevertheless does have all the things that we're going to talk about very much in mind. Be not many masters. And the Greek word for masters is, as you may all well know, is the Greek word didaskalos, which means an instructor. And what James is going to tell us is that God, despite the fact that there is a tendency in men, a strong tendency in men, to be friends with this one and not with that one, to uphold this one at the expense of somebody else, to look for these sorts of things in contradistinction to those over there, he says there is still a place for order in the ecclesia of the living God. And he says, therefore, be not many instructors. But he's not saying don't be an instructor. He's just giving a very clear warning that the position of instruction in the meeting is a very important and a critical one. 
a very responsible one. And therefore he's saying, don't neglect the position of instruction, but be extremely careful who you appoint to those positions and how they conduct themselves in those positions. That's really what chapter 3 is all about. So we're going to look at it very, very carefully, not just as James is saying it here, not just listening to the warning, but going through a number of scriptures to show us what James has in the back of his mind when he gives this warning. It is a very, very important warning. Now that word didaskalos in the Greek, which means an instructor, is rendered in various ways throughout the New Testament. You may like to note some down if you are making notes. In Luke chapter 2 and at verse 46, it's rendered doctors. When Jesus was 12 and he went missing from the family party as they journeyed back to their hometown, his mother went and found him sitting with the doctors of the law. In this chapter, of course, in verse 1 of James 3, it's rendered master. In Matthew chapter 3 and at verse no, uh, chapter 5 and verse 19, it's rendered teacher or teach. And there's a number of places where it is rendered teacher in the New Testament, particularly in the first of Timothy. It's also in Titus chapter 1 and verse 9 rendered by our English word doctrine. The same goes for the second of Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10 and the first of Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. In those places it is rendered doctrine. Now why would James therefore say, my brethren, be not many masters or be not many instructors or teachers? Well, he adds the reason for that, doesn't he? He says, knowing that we shall receive greater condemnation. Why does he say, be not many instructors? Why does he say, don't covet that position? Be very, very careful as to your location in that position. It is because there is greater condemnation given to those people, whoever they may be. When anybody ever takes the position of being an instructor in any way, brethren and sisters, he has got to only teach what God says. Because if he teaches something else, and if he happens to be somebody who is very gifted with words and the powers of persuasion, he can take whole ecclesias down a course which is not right. And what we adduce out of that, what we condense out of that statement of James chapter 3 and verse 1 is this that the prominence of anything is directly discounted in value when it is compared to secret things. James is saying exactly what his half-brother Jesus Christ taught. That if you want to make a prayer, you go right into your innermost closet where nobody can see. And even there, brothers and sisters, we know that we could be assailed by thoughts of how well we are praying, even there, our own mind could be affected. Even there, even after making all those safeguards, 
we might still fall down. We don't understand sometimes, do we, the power of the flesh. We give it rain very, very easily. That's what James is warning about. If you want to do your arms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand doeth. Because in any other circumstance, there is a danger of duality of motive. That's what he's guarding against. And if there's duality of motive, well, there's only one as far as God is concerned. And he will take right away the one which is to his glory and he only looks at the person and says, here's a person who's double-minded. And therefore, especially the prominent things will be directly discounted in value as compared with things that are done in secret. So what is the instructor going to do? Well, Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20 says, doesn't it? We all well know that place, but maybe we will turn to it for a moment in the 8th chapter of Isaiah, the favourite verse of Brother Thomas. Isaiah 8 and verse 20. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So here's a situation that is thrown upon the background, brethren and sisters, in verse 19, of the development of the apostasy of the first century ecclesia. If we just had time to run through this chapter, there are some really amazing things in there which lead up to verse 19. Perhaps we will do that as a, just a little exercise. Look at verse 13. Sanctify Yahweh of hosts himself. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. It's John the Baptist's message. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offence to both the houses of Israel for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Israel to whom Christ came. Verse 15, Many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and taken. That was the result, wasn't it, of the preaching of Christ, that people did not listen, the Jews mainly, and therefore they're in that condition. Verse 16, Bind up the testimony, Seal the law among my disciples. There's the going forth of the gospel to the Gentiles. And I will wait upon Yahweh that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, because he's turned it on the Jews, and I will look for him. Verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from Yahweh of armies which dwells in Mount Zion. A statement that is taken up in Hebrews chapter 2 as being illustrative of the ecclesia of the living God. Verse 19, the development of the apostasy. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? What are we going to do in the face of that? We're going to appeal to the law and to the testimony. Because if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And so we can see that that verse has a very great amount to do with a situation that developed because of evil and false beliefs infiltrating the meeting. An instructor has the job of making sure that the ecclesia stays within the bounds of the law and the testimony. 
and its right implementation and its right application and its right interpretation. James is not discouraging, brethren and sisters, the idea of being a teacher. He is simply telling us that there is a very real and double responsibility that falls upon somebody who does a prominent work in whatever field it may be. But it's true to say that in the ecclesia of the living God, the teaching position is the most exposed to that. And it is the most exposed to that. There just is no doubt about it. So what is the role of a, of a teacher, of an instructor? Well, if we come back into Deuteronomy chapter 8, we will see the objectives of God as they were set out. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, and reading from verses 1 to 3. And as we've said, we want to go slowly through this subject because it is a subject that is very critical and important to us all today. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy 8 says, All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which Yahweh swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which Yahweh thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee and to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of Yahweh doth man live. Now, brethren and sisters, do you think God needed to lead the children of Israel through all those vicissitudes of life to know what was in their heart? Did he know what was in their heart before? Of course he did. So the objective of God in giving the word is so that we might know what's in our heart. God knows what's in there. But sometimes we don't. So what then, if that's true, what then is the objective of an instructor? Well, the instructor has got to be able and he's got to have as his objective something that will get to the heart. If he doesn't do with the word of God, that's his only tool, if he does not do with the word of God, what God had in mind when he took the people of Israel through the wilderness, he's not a right instructor. And what did God have in mind? Well, the vicissitudes of life, the trials of their wilderness wanderings were so that the people might be humbled. So that they might be humbled, he was, he was to suffer them to hunger. So that there might be a proving process go on in their own heart. And in contradistinction to this, we won't turn it up, but in Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 5, I think it is from memory, Jeremiah says, the false prophets make you vain. And therefore, you, brethren and sisters, in the audience are able to weigh that up. 
If the words that come from this platform make you vain, if they puff you up, you know that that instructor is not right. If, on the other hand, they reduce you, you know that's God's objective. You know it is because that was the objective of God in bringing them through the wilderness. What is the word of God for? It is quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and it divides in sunder right into the midst of the joints and the marrow and it's able to discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's not nice therapy. But it's the right therapy. It's a therapy which takes the role of what God says in Deuteronomy 8. It says there must be a humbling process and it's got to be done by the word. The word is the only thing that can get in there to do the right therapy. Now that's not the only thing, of course, that is involved in an instructor's work. If we come back to the 16th chapter of Exodus... And at verse 5, I'm sorry I should have told you to keep your finger in Deuteronomy chapter 8, but in Exodus chapter 16 and at verse 5, we read of the first occurrence when the bread from heaven is about to come down so that the children of Israel can eat. And in verse 5 it says that it shall come to pass that on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Now, brethren and sisters, when we turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says that the manna was for a purpose and the manna was, verse 3, that it was so that God might make them know that man does not live by bread only but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh doth man live. Here's the objective of God in giving bread from heaven. What was the objective? Well, it was to make man understand that he doesn't live by the bread we have on our table three, days, three times a day. But he did give them substance that they actually and literally ate. So what's God saying? If you wanted to prove that we do not live by the bread that we had on the table three times a day, what would you do? Just the fact of feeding us three times a day proves that we live by that bread. So what did God do? Well, he gave to them something, brothers and sisters, that they came very quickly to loathe. And they found that it was not the substance that they wanted. And that's the word of God, isn't it? The word of God is not the substance that appeals to the flesh. It's the real substance that only feeds an inner man. It doesn't feed the outer man. It was never designed to feed the outer man. So when your mind is puffed up, by someone who stands on the platform and says he's giving to you the word of God, is that what God did with the children of Israel? You see, brothers and sisters, this word was never designed 
to fulfil the lust of the flesh. It's got nothing to do with the fulfilling of the lust of the flesh. And if there's anything that anybody ever says that feeds your desires, your base desires, you know it is not this word. You positively know that. And therefore, you are able to weigh what the teacher says. Does he reduce man? Does he elevate man? That's the issue. Now in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 5, it says that on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in. Now here, brethren and sisters, is bread from heaven. Bread from heaven. And they've got to prepare it. Surely God would bring us a meal that is well able to be digested and fit for food right now. But no, it's not. It has to be prepared. And that word, actually, brethren and sisters, the word for prepared there in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 5 is a primary root which means to be erect, to stand perpendicular or to set up. So what is God telling us? in the fact that they had to prepare the bread that they collected. Well, it is telling us that the bread that comes in this form, just like it is, is just not ready to eat. It's not ready to eat. That's why there needs to be teachers. Because the teacher has got to explain what the word of God means. And when he gets outside of that field, the audience has got to tell him. But you think of what is happening in the situation in Israel. You take it right back to the grassroots of the nation of Israel and God said, I'm going to make a selection. I'm going to make a selection of the firstborn in every family and he is going to be the leader of the religious worship of that family. What's he done? That's God's prerogative. That didn't come from man's ideas. And so what you see developing right throughout the family of Israel when that was replaced by one tribe as they gathered in number, God has always set order in his meetings, brethren and sisters. He has never operated within a framework where that order has not been established. And there will always be somebody who is more able to explain the word of God than somebody else in any meeting. Don't covet it. That's what James is saying. Israel's system was the right system. It was God's system. The only failure in that system was that the firstborn might not have been properly qualified. But it doesn't take away from the fact that God established that system. God, brethren and sisters, is only honoured when his order is acknowledged. If we want to honour God, we honour his appointments in all things. And that will be the case in every meeting wherever we go. So here is a situation, says God, in Exodus chapter 16, where the children of Israel have got to make upright the word. They've got to stand it erect and set it up. And we know that there are people in Old Testament times who were very much qualified for that. And let's then turn over to Nehemiah chapter 8. For in Nehemiah chapter 8 we see a man who is qualified for this work. 
We remember what Ezra had done. Ezra was a ready scribe in the law of his God. He had given himself to studying the word of God. There is just no question about that, that he had given himself to studying in the, in the word of God. And so, in verse 8 of Ezra chapter 8, we read that they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. So what was happening? They were taking the bread of heaven and they were preparing it. They were making it a dish that was made palatable, not to the flesh. We're not talking about a palate according to the things of the flesh. We are talking about the ability of some people to break that word open so that it is exposed so everyone can see it easily. So they can read the law distinctly so that they give the sense and the people understand. And it's understanding on the basis of the law and the testimony, light comes. And what's the objective of the light? It's to reduce man and to exalt God. Because as soon as man is reduced, God will be exalted. That will be the natural effect of that. But if it makes you vain, if it exalts man, you know it is not right. Because the objective of God was to humble a man and to prove him and to get the man to know what was in his heart. Because sometimes we just don't know what's in our own hearts. Now can we imagine, brothers and sisters, how God would feel when that is completely turned upside down? When, like Solomon says, I've seen men on horses and princes walking beside them. What he means is that the prince ought to be on the back of the horse and the man should be walking alongside. And when there is an order that is completely upturned in a meeting, God can't work with that meeting. He's got an order that ought to be acknowledged and appreciated and understood. And when it is, brethren and sisters, you will see a wonderful order and a harmony that flows through the meeting if that is done. If it is not, if an ecclesia is trying to go a different way from the brethren who are studying the Bible, if they're prepared to give their time to study that work and to give it sense and to make the people understand the, re the meaning of it, and the people say, we don't want it, is utter confusion in the meeting and nothing but bitterness and trouble and strife. That's all it'll breed. And if we want our meetings to run smoothly, we've got to have somebody who is acknowledged as able to expound the word of God. He may not be the best in the country. It doesn't matter. He is someone to whom we can go, but the responsibility is on him to stay within the confines of what the Bible says, to give the right understanding of it so that everybody will understand. And turning back then into James chapter 1, we see this other part of that verse coming into play. But James is not content with just saying, I want to give a warning to people that they should not clamour after or covet after the position of a teacher because we need to understand that upon the head of such a prominent person there is really great condemnation. There is really 
great responsibility. And now to outline that, we need to turn to some of the passages in the New Testament which have to do with that. First of all, in the second of Timothy chapter 2. And James is going to continue this theme right to the end of chapter 3. Second of Timothy chapter 2 and at verse 25. Verse 24, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all. He must be apt to teach. He must be patient. He must be able in meekness to instruct those who oppose themselves if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they might recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by them at his will. Brethren and sisters, our Lord Jesus Christ was given the tongue of the learned so that he might know how to speak a word to him that is weary. How many brethren do you know to whom you can go and confide in a time of trouble in your life and know that you're going to be given comfort and consolation. He's an instructor. He's a teacher. Because you know that you can go and speak to him and that in meekness he will be able to instruct you even if you are taking the wrong course in life because you'll be opposing yourself. How many brethren do you know like that? There's not very many, are there? And that's why James says, don't covet the position of that in the Ecclesia. Don't seek after that. Don't make that your goal. The Ecclesia may or may not make a right decision when it puts somebody upon the platform. And they might also correct it if they feel they've made a mistake. Don't worry about that. Try and do the work of God in the capacity that you are best suited to do, is James' advice. And the Ecclesia is most likely the source of the right decision. It's almost invariable that we won't be. We'll make a decision because we've looked in the mirror and we've seen a man that really is not there. So what does God say? Well, how about the other side of the coin? When there is a brother in the meeting who can do that and we say, we don't like your confusions, we know you study more than us. We know you know the Bible better than us. We know you can give good advice. We don't want what you say. What's going to happen to that meeting? What's going to happen to that person who takes that course? The teacher has faithfully discharged his responsibility and the person says, admitting all that about him, I know you've got all the qualities, but I don't like what you say. There's going to be confusion in that meeting too, isn't there? And God will not be able to work with that particular person in that meeting. He might continue to work with the meeting to direct it in the same course, but if that happens in a meeting, it will be a very sad thing. It will only cause roots of bitterness to come up. And there will be terrible results that accrue because of that. In the first of Timothy, chapter 5, and verse 17, the Apostle says that we ought to give double honour to those who labour in the word and in the doctrine. Because, brethren and sisters, it is really the most important job in the Ecclesia. It is the most important job. And because it's open and prominent, it is directly discounted in value in proportion to its prominence. That's what James is warning us about when he says, 
For upon us, and he includes himself in that, he says, upon us shall be the greater condemnation. So there's a Bible principle that has very much to do with that. And it's enunciated in Luke chapter 12 and verse 48 where it says, To him to whom much is given, of him will be much expected. And if there is but a little given to us, but a little will be expected. We are to recognise that, brothers and sisters. And if God has given to somebody something different and something able to be used more prominently than us, so what? And James is telling us, so what? He's saying it's safer not to have it. That's what he's saying. And it is, brethren and sisters. That's absolutely true. It is safer not to have it. And then we find in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, rather the 13th chapter of Hebrews, this is the position that God ordained in the first century ecclesia. In Hebrews chapter 13 and at verse 17. He says, submit to them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief because if the leading brethren in the ecclesia are accounting themselves responsible in some way for you, brethren and sisters, and you are rejecting their advice, they can only do that with grief. They can only do it with a great amount of sorrow. And it is a very difficult position to take in a meeting where you are the person or the group of persons who are mainly responsible for the giving of the advice of that meeting and to direct it in the ways that you believe are right because you believe the Bible say they are right. Let the elders of the meeting therefore, says the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 13, let them do their job with joy. Don't burden them down with something which is unnecessary. Don't make them to grieve because you resist the counsel of God against your own selves through them. For they need to have every bit of the burden lifted off them and not to be unduly weighed down. So it's a very important section of James's writings is the first verse of James chapter 1. My brethren, he says, and it's obviously a very earnest appeal, don't seek after the position of instructor. Don't seek the position that is open and prominent because there is double responsibility placed upon the head of anybody who does obtain to that, that position. And verse 2 is not disconnected from that. For in many things we all offend. In many things we all offend. It's not offend all. It's in many things we all offend. We all make mistakes. Teachers are not immune from making mistakes. Because if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. And why do you think, brethren and sisters, it is that James goes on, therefore, to talk about the tongue in the context of ecclesial instructors? Well, it must be because that is a very great and really dangerous area for ecclesial instructors. 
And who, brethren and sisters, more qualified to retail the faults of other people than ecclesial instructors? They've come along, people have come along to them, they've confided in them. They've poured out their hearts to them in something that is wrong in their life. They're seeking for advice. And has not therefore that person got even the greater responsibility for closing his mouth? Of course it is. And so James launches right into those tremendously strong exhortations that he gives about the tongue. And we just want to say a few words about the tongue. This word in verse 2, for in many things we offend all, as we've said, should really be inverted so that we can understand it better. For in many things we all offend. Because if a man does not offend in word, if he has never ever said anything that is wrong, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Just a little word about the scriptural word offence, brethren and sisters. The scriptural word offence is the word that is not here. It's not the word offence here, but in other places it is. The scriptural word that is rendered offence sometimes, but means stumbling block, means that a person makes another one sin. It's not talking about that here. It's saying, in many things we all stumble. It's not the situation where by a man's particular words or actions he has drawn another person into wrong ways. That's really the word offence as it occurs in many other places in the New Testament. That's not the word that is used here. Here this, on this occasion it is the word for stumble and we all do that. We all stumble many times. And if we do not stumble in word... The same also is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Now he gives to us two, two illustrations. Behold, he says, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm whithersoever the governor listeth, even so the tongue. So what we're looking at is two illustrations, one out of a thing of nature which man has learned to control and something that a man has made which he has learned to control. And both of those things, the horse and the ship, are controlled by a tiny little thing. You've got the bits in the horse's mouth. The reins, of course, going back over the head into the hands of the rider by which he controls the movements of that horse. And you've got the little rudder back at the end of the ship. You've got a helmsman on there and he moves the helm in whatsoever he wants and that great ship, ship is turned around even though it is driven by fierce winds. So is the tongue in our members. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the whole course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. And what is James telling us? He's telling us that there are many other members in our body, all of which in some way or another we don't find it all that difficult to control. But the tongue is another story altogether. 
And if we just run through two or three quotations, in Psalm 73, it's depicted as the avenue of arrogance and godliness. In Psalm 57 verse 4 and 64 verses 3 to 5, it's depicted as the thing which brings vice and malice. It's depicted as razor sharp and deceitful in Psalm 52 and verse 2. It's depicted as like a serpent's tongue in Psalm 140 and verse 3. And the psalmist in Psalm 141 and at verse 3 acknowledges the danger of its power where he says, Set a bar against the mouth of the, the tongue of my lips so that I will not speak evil. And that tongue, brethren and sisters, is very definitely our greatest failing. It is the thing of which James says it's just impossible for man to control. There's just no exceptions. It's just impossible for a man to control. Man has looked at everything outside of himself. He's looked at the ship, great ships in the sea. He's looked at horses. He's looked at serpents. He's looked at everything that God has made. And in some way or another, he's been able to bring it under his control. But never the tongue. The tongue can no man tame, says James. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. And we bless God with it and we curse man. Two images, brothers and sisters, that are identical. Because man was made in the image of God, as verse 9 goes on to say. And there's the Father and there's man. And we look at them, they're the same basic image. And we curse one and we bless the other. Is that possible? Is that a single tree? Is that doing what God wants us to do? Is that having a singleness of intention and a basic oneness of track in life? Are we showing ourselves to be the children of God? No, we're not, are we? And we fall foul of it time and time and time again. So who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among us? Well, let him show out of a good way of life his works with meekness of wisdom. And what James is saying is that the wisdom that comes from above will breed meekness. But the wisdom that comes from the earth will only breed boasting. And they're two very opposite qualities, aren't they? So the wisdom that is from above is first purifying, then peaceable. It's gentle and easy to be entreated when you have somebody in your meeting, brothers and sisters, who is like that. You've got an instructor. You've got a didascalus. You've got somebody who can rightly divide the word. You've got somebody who exudes confidence. Not in himself, but he breeds it in you. And you're able, therefore, to happily go to him, or to her it may be, in some circumstances. And you're able to pour out your hearts to them, and they're able to give you advice. They're able to break the word small. It reduces you, but then they're able to say, now it's only God that can pick us up. And it is, isn't it? It is only God who can pick us up. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in them, is sown in peace of them that make peace. And there's only one thing that can give us peace, and that's this word. And if we speak not according to it, it is because there is no light in us. And when that word is properly used and exercised on our <coughs> minds, it will humble us, it will prove us, and it will tell us what is in our own hearts.